It's always a pleasure to lead worship here in Cambridge. As a member of the congregation and a Unitarian Universalist minister who serves in other contexts, I relish the opportunity to worship amongst friends. I'm grateful for Adam's invitation to fill the pulpit this Sunday. He's off speaking at the Indivisible Conference in Worcester as part of a panel on race, justice, and action. Makes my heart glad to know that he is sharing a Unitarian Universalist message about how to work against racial injustice and white privilege with a wide progressive audience. One of the most important things we do as Unitarian Universalists is offer our prophetic voice to the public sphere. And Adam's absence today is a reminder that what we do outside of these walls is matters as much as what we do within them when we gather for worship. In this age of nuclear weapons and ecological catastrophe, it is crucial that we respond to Martin King's insight that we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Though the words are unfortunately gendered, they express the deep truth of our era. Salvation is social, not individual. Put another way, authentic spirituality in 2017 is not about what any one of us do by ourselves. It's about what we do together. This is admittedly a complicated Sunday to offer a sermon. The Christian theologian Karl Barth is supposed to have remarked, the Christian should pray with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, I'm not a Christian. Newspapers are not what they used to be. But I've interpreted this apocryphal saying as offering a suggestion about prayer and preaching. It implies that our worship should be simultaneously rooted in the reality of the present and in the depth of our religious traditions. This week, the news has been filled with major stories. If I was to follow the advice of preaching with a newspaper in one hand, I would have to construct a sermon that somehow addressed the horrors of the week. We would have to mention the events in Texas, the almost endless revelations of deep patterns of predation exposed in the newspapers. We'd also have to reflect upon the Tuesday elections, the coalition of women and people of color and transgendered individuals that won office throughout the country has given many liberals and some leftists cause for celebration in the face of despair. And of course, I would be obliged to gesture towards Veterans Day. Instead of addressing these events directly, I want to make a general claim about our religious life together. And I'm going to offer a gentle nudge about what it means to be human. Adam told me that this month in worship, you're exploring different ways of knowing the self. The self that I wish to suggest we consider this morning is not individual, but social. Whatever path might be taken towards that which we call enlightenment, salvation, divine knowledge, or nirvana is not one we travel as individuals. It is one we discover together. The Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh approaches this point when he suggests that we meditate upon a sheet of paper. He tells us, if we look at this sheet of paper, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. 
In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that sunshine is also in this piece of paper. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to transform it into paper. And we can see the wheat. We know that the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. And therefore, the wheat that became his bread is also in this paper. And the logger's father and mother are there too. When we look in this way, we can see that without all of these things, the sheet of paper cannot exist. The sheet of paper does not exist by itself. The same is true for each of us. We have been constituted, created by our relations with our families, our communities, our society, and all that is this muddy blue planet we call Earth. As the poet Shamborska confessed, I owe a lot to those I do not love. We are even shaped by strangers. Such a claim ran, runs counter to much of American culture and indeed portions of our own Unitarian Universalist theology. Many of us take the principle of our commitment to a free and responsible search for truth and meaning to be an individual quest. In doing so, we might invoke historic figures like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, or Margaret Fuller. These figures are dear to our hearts and our transcendentalist heritage. This year, in fact, is the 200th anniversary of Henry David Thoreau's birth. He was raised a Unitarian in our congregation in Concord. When he resigned his membership at the age of 23, he sent the clerk a simple note. I do not wish to be considered a member of First Parish in this town. Thoreau did not give an explicit reason. His famous individualism suggests that he may have held a sentiment similar to the congregation that is expressed by the comedian Groucho Marx. When leaving a different organization, Marx wrote, please accept my resignation. I don't care to belong to any club that would have me as a member. Yet, against his objections, we Unitarian Universalists have taken Thoreau as a member. In a recent article in the UU World, the current minister in Concord, Howard Dana, makes the claim, modern-day Unitarian Universalism in many ways started with Thoreau and Emerson. Now, I'll confess that my own theological and historical sentiments make me disinclined to agree with my colleague's assessment. Nonetheless, there is substantive truth to the idea that Thoreau is a major figure within our tradition. His words are frequently invoked in Unitarian Universalist pulpits. There are numerous religious education curricula that focus on his texts and philosophy. Ministerial students study him in seminary. There's even a congregation named after him in Texas. I will even admit to citing Thoreau's connection to our history when confronted by the perplexed who have never heard of Unitarian Universalism before. When many of us think of Thoreau, we think of him as the archetypal individual. If I say his name, perhaps you recall the opening paragraph to Walden. When I wrote the following pages, or rather the bulk of them, I lived alone in the woods, a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I built myself on the shore of Walden Pond 
in Concord, Massachusetts, and earned my living by the labor of my hands alone. I lived there two months and two years, and at present, I am a sojourner in civilized life again. I lived alone in the woods, a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I built myself. Such words express the autonomy of the individual. They imply that the self you are considering in worship this month is an individual, and how easy it is to center on this perception. For what is more individual than the self? The sense of I, me, the one who is speaking from the pulpit, appears as a singular perception. I suspect that the same is true for you as you sit in the aged wooden pews. This pulpit and those pews were carved generations ago after this, or b before the Civil War. Yet, if you run your hands across the smooth grain, I imagine it is you and you alone who experience the tactile sensation of finger against smooth paint. Certainly, as far as I can see, perceive these, this hand of mine placed upon these planks, it is mine and mine alone. I am unaware of anyone else perceiving this precise contact I have now. And yet, and yet, we owe to others that we have this sanctuary, that we can gather for worship, that we can gaze distractedly out of the glass-clear windows, that we can lean on cushions as the sermon progresses, that we have language at all to describe these experiences and objects. I owe a lot to those I do not love. We are social creatures. The self that each of us perceives ha from, has been con constructed socially. Think about the very categories we use to describe ourselves. Words like gender, race, class, citizenship. Each of these is a social construct, not a natural category. Male, female, white, black, Asian, Latinx, indigenous, rich, poor, United States citizen or beloved undocumented sibling. These labels are labels we give each other that do not exist outside of human language. I suspect that many or most or possibly all of these categories are categories that we use when we describe ourselves. I know I do. When I fill out a job application or fill in forms, I check off the various census boxes, white, male, non-Hispanic. And I know that when many people look at me, that's what they see first, white, heteronormative, male. These categories have formed many of the experiences and opportunities that I've had throughout my life. These experiences and opportunities have in turn shaped my sense of self, my understanding of the I that is now speaking and perceiving before you. One of my teachers, the folk singer, anarchist, and Unitarian Universalist Bruce Utah Phillips used to, like share, used to like to share words from his own teacher, a member of the Catholic worker pacifist movement named Ammon Hennessy. When Bruce was a young man, much younger than I am now, he told Ammon he wanted to be a pacifist. Ammon said to him, you came into this world armed to the teeth. 
with an arsenal of weapons, weapons of privilege, economic privilege, sexual privilege, racial privilege. If you want to be a pacifist, you're not going to have to just give up knives and guns and clubs and hard and angry words. You're going to have to learn to lay down the weapons of privilege and go into the world completely disarmed. When I think of Ammon's words, I realize how little of who I am can truly be attributed to my own actions and choices, and how much I have benefited from the systems of racial injustice and white privilege that Adam is off today speaking prophetically against. What about you? How much of who you are has been shaped by the perceptions of others and their choices? my own ability to achieve an education, to have the self-discipline to work hard, to appreciate art, to love literature. I owe a lot to those I do not love. The self we have is a social creature, and so its salvation must be social as well. Now, when I use the word salvation, I'm not explicitly invoking the Christian tradition or the Buddhist ideal of nirvana the extinction of the self and the escape from suffering. Instead, I'm thinking of the philosopher Josiah Royce, whose words we often cite when we invoke the phrase beloved community. He rendered salvation as the idea that there's some aim or, or end of human life which is more important than any other. He suggested that there is a great danger of missing this high, highest ideal, and that if we do so, we might render our lives a senseless failure by virtue of coming up short of this goal. We could put Royce's words differently by saying that salvation suggests that there is a purpose to life and that we are in danger of missing it. So much of religion is devoted in one fashion or another to this idea. And so many religious traditions suggest that it is something for the individual to achieve. The majority of Christian theologians, mystics, and religious leaders encourage the development of a personal relationship with God. The bulk of Buddhist thought centers upon the achievement of individual enlightenment. Our own dear Henry Thoreau lived alone in the woods, a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I had built myself. But if the self is social, as I have been suggesting, then its salvation must be social as well. As the poet Audre Lorde observed, without community there can be no liberation. Only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between an individual and her oppression. The great end to human life, whatever it may be, is something that we will either achieve together or fail to achieve together. If we are going to deconstruct or change or alter the categories that define us and limit us, the categories that brought some of us into this world armed to the teeth, then we must do so together. This change, this deconstruction, is part of our path towards communal salvation. It does not lie with the obliteration of our differences or the destruction of our individual selves. For while the self is constructed socially, it is nonetheless something I experience, and I imagine you experience, as real as well. No other hand but mine can now touch these planks. No other back but yours can rest against that pew. Audre Lorde advises us, 
Community must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretenses that these differences do not exist. I trust that your experience is your own, just as my experience is are my own. The very problem with so many narratives of individual salvation is they suggest that there is but one path to ultimate truth, whatever it may be, that religious traditions suggest we humans seek. Salvation is to be found through Jesus. Nirvana comes through the practice of meditation. Thoreau suggests that self-reliance is the key. There is only one true scripture. There are, in fact, many paths, but we must figure out how to navigate them together. Salvation, our highest purpose, is something that we either achieve together or we perish as a species like fools. Is that not the story of all of the difficult and upsetting news of the week? Is that not the story of the news of every week? That we must learn to respect our differences while building a world and a community that liberates all of us? In the end, the major message of this sermon could be summed up by that well-worn fable of Stone Stoop. Perhaps you remember it. In the story, some travelers come to a village carrying nothing but a large pot. The travelers admit, arrive in the midst of hard time, perhaps famine even. Each villager is hoarding a small stash of food, and all of them are hungry. They not, will not share with each other or with the travelers. So the travelers go to a stream. They fill their pot with water, drop a large stone in it, and light a fire underneath it. One of the villagers comes to ask the travelers what they are doing. The answer, they answer, we're making stone soup. The soup, they say, is delicious. It tastes wonderful, and they'd be delighted to share it with the villagers. But, they tell her, it's missing a little something to improve the flavor. Perhaps she'd be willing to part with a few carrots. She fetches some from her house, and another curious villager stops at the pot. Soon, another villager appears and asks about the soup that is stewing. He's convinced to bring a few onions. And so it goes, tomatoes and barley, kale, garlic. Eventually, everything comes together to make a delicious soup. Individually, there was not enough for anyone to have a meal. Together, the villagers and the travelers can eat. A social salvation. After this story and all that I have said, I close with a prayer. May my words, however imperfect, and our time together, however brief, stir us all to remember a greater truth. We are all caught in the same single garment of destiny, and whatever good there is to be achieved in this world is a good that we shall achieve together. Amen and blessed be.